Well, after about a little more than a month off, we're back in the Gospel of Luke. And we pick it up with the return of the 70 uh, from their missionary journey, announcing the coming of Jesus and his kingdom. So again, we're in chapter 10, and we're going to pick it up with verse 17. Luke 10, beginning in verse 17. The 72, or the 70, returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go again to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this time together to meditate on your word. And we do pray in this time that we would see and hear from Jesus through your spirit. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. Well, if you can remember back to about six weeks ago or so, we left off with Jesus having sent out the 70 disciples. Previous to this, he had sent out the 12, but in chapter 10, he had expanded it to a wider group of committed disciples. And what is clear is that at this point in his ministry, he had a large group of people, both men and women, maybe in the hundreds even, following him. However, many of them over the next few months, really the next year, would fall away uh, from him. Now, the number 70 is important. And as I mentioned back in November, when we first started talking about this missionary journey, there is a scholarly debate over whether it's 70 or 72, like what you read in, uh, or what I read in the translation. And the debate centers on the earliest copies of the New Testament in existence in what is called a textual variant. Now, about half the manuscripts of the Gospel of Luke have the number 70, and the other half have the number 72. And most textual variants in the Bible are just like this. They are minor things, and it could be like a different word order, for example. So Greek word order doesn't matter to the same degree that it does in English. Or it could be a difference of spelling, because spelling really wasn't standardized in any language until the advent of the printing press, or it could be the addition of a word or the subtraction of a word from a verse. And even so, these variants, they never, I mean, ever result in different meanings or or contradictions between manuscripts. So translators like those who produced our, our Pew Bible, which is the ESV or English Standard Version, they often, as a rule, will opt for the more difficult reading, and the scholarly assumption is that the more difficult reading is probably, not always, but is probably the original, 
And, and the easier reading was most likely a later edition or a change made by a scribe or a scholar like 100, 200 years later that tried to smooth the text or, or, or was maybe even offering commentary. <clears throat> Excuse me. In the case of our text this morning, the more difficult reading would actually be 72. That's why you find it in the ESV. But given how the number 70 is used within roughly half the manuscript, so it's evenly split, and it's purposely used symbolically throughout the entire Old Testament, I think the more natural reading is actually 70. So case in point, just to show you what I mean. In the Old Testament, the number 70 often represents the Gentile nations, like what you find with the listing of all the 70 nations in Genesis 10. Now, it doesn't say here's 70 nations. You're supposed to count them. And there's 70 nations listed there. Is that all the peoples that there were? No, but that 70 is symbolic of wholeness of, of the nations. Or it's like how in Exodus 15, when God delivered Israel out of Egypt, they initially stopped at Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and that is a direct allusion to the promise God made to Abraham that through his offspring, Israel, the 12 springs of water, God would bring life to the world, the 70 palm trees. That Jesus was sending out 70 disciples here was a sign that through him, he's the true Israelite, God was taking back the world from the powers and principalities, both human and spiritual, and was bringing life where before there had been only death. Jesus is the life-giving water who grows righteous trees. That's what's in view here. And the way in which he would bring his kingdom to bear, just like how God created the world, was and is through speaking. Jesus announced the kingdom of God in his name, and in turn, had chosen to speak through his people. That's what's on view in this, this big initial missionary journey. And it's, it's how he continues to bring his kingdom to bear in the world even now. So he sent the 70 out proclaiming his kingdom, healing in his name and casting out demons. And in whatever town they went, went to, the symbol that a home or a town had received the kingdom was through their hospitality that they offered to the disciples. And really, it is the same for us today. God continues to speak his word through his people, and he invites them, like we're going to do today, to come and eat with them. And this has been the pattern since the Garden of Eden. Then, just as it is now, God reveals himself and brings people to saving faith through the simple means. They are simple. The simple means of his word, both read and preached sacraments and prayer. So what we do here every week, in a certain sense, is incredibly simple. It's incredibly simple, but it is in keeping with what God has always been doing and certainly what the early church did in obedience to Jesus. As Jesus makes clear in verse 16, he speaks through his disciples. And so those who receive the disciples' word about Jesus receive Jesus himself. Even as those who reject their word about Jesus, well, they reject Jesus himself too. As John's gospel makes clear, and Jesus says this later on in our own passage today as well, to reject Jesus is to reject the Father. So you cannot have the Father 
without the Son. So it does not matter how, say, pious or supposedly good a person is, if they reject Jesus and His Word, they do not have God. And in turn, they do not have life. Because humans were made for life with God. And if you don't want it, then you don't have it. This is why when people claim, for example, Judaism and Christianity and Islam worship the same God, they are mistaken. They are mistaken. While they may share a history that stems from Abraham, Judaism and Islam reject Jesus as the Son of God. And by Jesus' own words, they do not have the Father, and so they do not know Him. They are worshiping the wrong God. But this sort of problem happens even among those who claim to be Christian too. For example, there was a video making the rounds this week on Twitter in which an archbishop, and I think, I'm not exactly sure, I think it's probably the Church of England, that in this video, and this was supposed to be a comfort to his people, that he straight up said that the Bible is not really the Word of God. It is filled with all kinds of problems and errors and really just as one group of people's opinions about God. Good people don't listen to the Bible. They listen to God wherever he speaks through other good people, whatever that means. No matter their religion or their beliefs or their philosophies, they just don't. And you know, it comes across, according to our age, as, as humble and kind. And I'm sure his, his English accent you know, gives an air of respectability, and certainly to, I don't know why, but to Americans, it comes across as intelligent. But he's actually demonic. He's wearing a collar and all the rest. He's demonic. The man is an effeminate wolf in sheep's clothing, devouring the flock is a false prophet, and he does so in God's name. See, if a person denies the apostles' word about Jesus, that person does not have God at all and has instead made God into his own image. Well, verse 17 tells us that the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now, the disciples' joy, I think, looks forward to the joy that they will experience after Christ's ascension into heaven when they go with joy to worship God through the Son and the Spirit in the temple. And I think the reason for their joy is the same, really, in both cases. They see and they believe that Jesus' kingdom has shown up in power. And this is part of the, the great reversal that you see all throughout Luke's gospel. So instead of humanity in chains and under the power of demons, now the demons answer to the disciples in Jesus' name. Now that last part, that last phrase, in Jesus' name, is really important. The authority over demons is not intrinsic to the disciples. So it's not a power that they have in themselves. It is Jesus who has authority over the demons, and he has given this authority to his people. So whereas, for example, in the Garden of Eden, Adam should have listened to God's word, guarded his bride, and kicked the serpent out of the garden, demonstrating his God-given dominion over creation, which was given to him, right, by God. He instead listened to the serpent. He did not guard his bride, and he became subject 
to the serpent who then ruled over him. Jesus, the true Adam, he reverses all of that. He reverses all of that and has restored humanity's position of dominion in the world. And in response to the 70, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, or more literally, I was watching Satan fall. Now, not to be too nerdy, but I am a nerd. Not to be too nerdy, but the grammar here actually really matters. I was watching indicates that Satan's fall is a past event even as it continues to happen. That is, Satan has fallen and he continues to fall. And what that means is that even as Satan has been overthrown and thrown out of heaven, there is still mop-up work yet to be done. So if you consider Job 1, for example, it seems clear that previous to this, Satan, or really it's the Satan, it's his title. Kind of like Jesus Christ. Christ is not his name. That's his title. He is the Christ. Well, Satan's not his name. He is the Satan. He is the accuser. He was given, apparently, some access to God's divine counsel. You know, when all God's heavenly servants gathered to him, and there, the Satan would accuse God's people. And with Jesus, he has lost this role. And in turn, he's been thrown out of heaven. And Jesus continually, he replaces Satan, and he continually intercedes for his people now at the right hand of God. There is no one accusing you before God the Father. No, instead, Jesus intercedes for you. Revelation 12 actually gives a fuller version of what Jesus means when he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. And here's, here's just a few verses of it. He says this. It says this there. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. There's some of that imagery of serpent that you see that becomes the great dragon by the book of Revelation. And it's Satan, all the same figure. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan. See, all the same creature. The deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. So, even as Satan has lost the war and has lost his role as the accuser of God's people, still he is allowed to make war on the earth against God's people for a time. Well, in verse 19, Jesus explains further what in his name means. He says, he has given the disciples authority over demons, or as he says there, to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. So serpents and scorpions are symbols throughout the Bible of spiritual evil. And we just read that in Revelation 12, right? And notice how the imagery works. The disciples will tread on these dangerous creatures. That is, they will have power over demons and follow the imagery. Even as they step on these venomous creatures, 
preachers that have a real bite, they will not be hurt. They will not be hurt by that. And going back to Genesis 3, of course, the promise to Eve is that her offspring would crush the head of the serpent even as the serpent would bruise his heel. But here in this moment, the disciples are given free reign over the demons without fear of being hurt by them, even as Jesus would soon crush the head of the serpent and would be hurt by him. Now, this is not to say that the disciples of the future church would not face persecution, sometimes incredibly severe persecution, and that still happens to this day. And it happens because of of Satan and and his demons. I mean, Revelation 12 is, is clear that after his defeat as the accuser of God's people, the great dragon would make war against God's people, something that we endure to this day. It is happening in our country to this day. Even then, they cannot accuse us before God, let alone the pain that they inflict on us, while it can be severe, is but for a moment. It's for a moment. But in this moment in Luke 10, when the 70 are sent out to proclaim the kingdom, they would not be hurt by demons. They would not be hindered by demons. No, they could walk all over them and not feel a thing, so to speak. Well, in verse 20, Jesus tells the disciples not to rejoice in the fact that they have this authority as if such things give them value or or pride of place. They do not. No, they are to rejoice that their names are written in heaven. So, like the high priest who carries the names of the tribes of Israel on him, on his body as he interceded for them in the holy place, so the disciples... Their names are written on Jesus' hands, and they are to rejoice in that. And the imagery here is akin really to the census of Israel. Their names are in the book of life. They are counted as among God's people. That's what gives them value. That's what actually mattered. Even so, as we saw months ago in Luke chapter 9, verses 46 through 48, if you remember, the disciples were tempted to rank themselves to rank themselves according to greatness. And, of course, that's however they defined greatness, which, of course, in the kingdom of God is just foolishness. It's foolishness. There is no doubt that we, of course, struggle with this sort of thing, too, in innumerable ways. And typically we use possessions or jobs or physical attributes to demarcate class and, and status to make us feel as though we have more value and all that kind of stuff. We do that in the church, and we do that outside of the church. But I think... What's on view here in Luke 10 is a particular temptation for men like me and men in my position. So, for example, a video was recently sent to me, and I'd seen it before, but it had been a long time. And it was a a video of an older man preaching in a church. And it appears, uh, as I interpret it anyway, to be kind of a church conference of of some kind. And as he's, he's preaching... This is a big church now. He's preaching. Uh, he sees a man in the congregation having a side conversation. He sees it off to his side, and he yells at the man. I mean, like, hey, you, stop! I mean, just like that. Can you imagine? Can you imagine me doing this? It's crazy, right? But this is what, what he does. And then he says, you. I mean, he, he points him out. 
You, Brandon Slagley. You know, kind of like that. Sorry, Brandon. He says, you quit talking. I'm the one preaching here. Oof. And he stares him down. Like the, you, you know how pastors can do the long pause, the dramatic pause? He does that. He stares him down, and he starts to go back to his text. Like he reads a verse, and then he reads it against the man. Right? And he, he seemingly is calling the guy's salvation into question. And he says not once, but twice. He, he gives this, this terrible fake smile. He just kind of goes, love you, man. It's so bad. It's so bad, right? And then he ended his public shaming of the side talker with, you reap what you sow. And I thought, oh, man. Buddy, you're right. You're right. So here's the thing. Well, I, I'm not sure of this. I'd be willing to bet the preacher had no idea what the man was saying and why he was saying it. Maybe that guy was talking to his wife. Are you feeling okay? Is your head still pounding? Who knows? And it seems clear that the man was probably a stranger to him, so he's not calling out a friend, right, for a joke. It's just like I have no idea what is going through your minds while you listen to me. No idea, and it would be wrong of me to apply motivation to your facial expressions and your body language and your shifting in the seats or your side conversations or why you might be dozing off. I have no idea. In fact, you're all blurry to me right now because my glasses are there so I can read up close. And you know what? It's a help to me because it takes away the temptation of reading motivation into you because I can, if I'm wearing them, I can see your faces clearly. So what seems clear to me is that this man, because he was a preacher, and while I don't recognize him, and the context indicates that he must have been pretty well respected, he assumed that his role, really his authority to preach, gave him a pride of place. To say, you quit talking, I'm the one preaching, is another way of saying, I'm the one who matters here, not you. And when a pastor believes that about himself, and trust me, it's easy to believe, he's on very dangerous ground. And you do tend to reap what you sow. See, Jesus told his disciples who were on dangerous ground too, who had arguably had far greater success, including the casting out of demons. Can you imagine? That these God-given roles did not make them better than anyone else. In fact, James 3 tells us that teachers of the word will actually be judged stricter because of the privilege and the authority given to them. No, instead, they should rejoice that they belong to the kingdom of God, which puts their value and status on equal par with everyone else who is united to Christ. Pastors are not better. No, they are servants. They're the servants in the house of the Lord. Well, verse 21 tells us that in that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. So that is, Jesus is doing what he taught his disciples to do, to rejoice in God. It's very much like what David uh, prays and sings in Psalm 145. In fact, I use this for the prayer of adoration. He says this, I will extol you. That's a kind of praise. My God and King 
and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. As Scott Swain points out, if great is the Lord is a true statement, then praise of the Lord is bound up with who and what he is because his greatness is unsearchable. That means you can't put an end to it. I can put an end to Michael Jordan's greatness. You cannot put an end to the God who made Michael Jordan. So if the Lord is great by definition, you will praise him. In fact, you can't help but praise him. And so it puts how we worship him really into focus. And so it's not merely that you show up to worship, that's good, but how you worship. So to the extent that you engage even in this simple service, and it is simple, is a reflection of who you believe you are actually worshiping. David continues. He says, one generation shall commend your works to another and should declare your mighty acts. So that is, fathers, parents will teach their children about God. One generation passes on the word of God about his mighty works to the next. On the glorious splendor, he says, of, of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. So he thinks about them. He thinks about them. He ponders them. What did our God do for us in Exodus? What has God done for us in Jesus Christ? They shall speak of the, the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour, pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. So this is exactly what Jesus does. He does this over and over again. And, and as we see Jesus doing here, to know this God, it's to rejoice in him, to build your life around him, to meditate on what he has said and done, and to teach and commend God to each generation. It's a privilege to do that. You can see then why that video of the archbishop denying that the Bible is the word of God is so demonic. He denies the account of what God has done for his people, God's mighty works, his beautiful teaching, and instead teaches that we should look to our own feelings and our own desires and whoever we think is good. The reason Jesus rejoices here is the mighty acts he has in mind is that the one who made the heavens and the earth, Jesus' father, has hidden the incredible works being done by Jesus and his disciples from the wise and understanding and instead revealed them to little children. And this, as he says, was God's gracious will. Now keep in mind that almost everything that Jesus was talking about had been done in public in front of hundreds, if not thousands of people, and right in front of the so-called wise and understanding, people like, say, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So his preaching, his healing, his exorcisms, the people he's raised from the dead, they were witnessed up close and personal by both what he calls the wise and little children. So when Jesus said it was hidden from them, he does not mean that his ministry was done in private. Or, or that people didn't see it. It's more so kind of like Pharaoh in, in Egypt who witnessed all the same things, all the same things that Israel witnessed, but he would not turn. He would not repent. He would not bow the knee. He'd rather die 
then worship the true God and admit the truth of what was happening. And just like with Pharaoh, who hardened his own heart against God, even as God hardened Pharaoh's heart, so here, Jesus tells us that God intentionally blinded the wise understanding of Israel, really the self-proclaimed fathers and shepherds of Israel, even as he opened the eyes of those who they had authority over, the little children of Israel, the common people. It's like the warning Jesus gave previous in 10 in verses 13 through 16 to the cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum. He says, woe to you. And we don't talk like that in English anymore, but when you hear that in the Bible, it's a bad thing. God says that to you, it's a bad thing. Woe to you because of everything you saw, everything you witnessed, the words you heard preached to you, and yet you did not believe. It's why men like Peter and John go on to believe at great cost to themselves. I mean, they had eyes to see, and they gradually, over time, came to understand fully what they were seeing in Jesus, even while Israel's leadership witnessed the same things. They did not understand and instead plotted to unlawfully kill Jesus for the good of Israel, no less. There's irony in that. This is not to say that all of Israel's leadership would forever be blinded, of course. I mean, clearly, Paul, for example, was given eyes to see. Even so, what is in view is, again, what is called the great reversal. It's just like what Mary sings in the Magnificat of Luke chapter 1. This is after she has received the news that she would bear the Messiah. She says, My soul magnifies the Lord. That's where Magnificat comes from in the Latin. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. That's the reversal. That's the reversal right there. He has filled, <clears throat> excuse me, he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So just go right back to Paul. When God confronted Paul on the Damascus road, he blinded him for a time. He scattered his proud thoughts. He removed him from his newfound fame and authority as a zealot persecutor of the church. He humbled him and forced him like a little child, child to be dependent on others, in particular, the very people he had been persecuting. So God humbled Paul in order to exalt Paul. And now, you know, 2,000 years later, more people name their children Paul than they do say Julius Caesar, one of the most exalted names of all history, or Caesar Augustus. In fact, we tend to name our dogs Caesar or Augustus. Now, none of this was Paul's idea, not a bit of it. Paul thought he was doing just fine when Jesus confronted him. This was all God's gracious will, what we see him doing. So in verse 23, Jesus tells his disciples, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. 
Now, this is the same point Hebrews 11 makes. That chapter begins with Abel and traces all the way through the exile in Babylon and then the return to the land, so almost all of Israel's history, and showing how those who were faithful to God, and clearly not all of Israel was faithful, they patiently waited for God's promises to be fulfilled, and they did not see it. They did not see it. They did not see the Messiah in their own times. But the disciples here, who are clearly, they're not kings, and they're not revered prophets. They don't merely see the Messiah. They know him. They get to talk with him like Moses and Elijah could speak with him at his transfiguration. So too, we the little children, we the Gentiles, who have been given eyes to see and ears to hear, have been given the privilege of hearing God through his word. So like David, we can meditate on it. We have the privilege of building our lives around it. Like the great saints of old who died never seeing the promise fulfilled in Jesus yet lived by this word, we can do that too, except we know him. We have seen that he has come. And in turn, we have the privilege of rejoicing daily and weekly together in our God and teaching his mighty works to each new generation. So as we come to the Lord's table, let us recognize that this is not merely a ritual. This is not merely a ritual that we do. This is not like standing for the national anthem where we stare at a flag that does not stare back and does not care a thing about us. No, this is a sacrament given and commanded to us by the king. He has tied his word and his presence to this meal. And in this meal, our God meets with us and he has promised to use these simple elements of bread and wine to build up his, uh, his people in faith, hope, and love. And in this meal, we see, now think about this, we don't just see it, the symbol, we touch it, we taste it, we eat it. A sign and a symbol of the mighty hand of the Lord who has worked salvation for us and who continues to work in us, sanctifying us, preparing us for the life to come. Well, let me pray for us as we come to the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this word that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that through your spirit, you would continue to convict us and confirm in us that our names have been written in the book of life and there's no greater thing that we could ever have and as we began this service with the words of Tim Keller, there's no greater thing or value we could have than that you delight in us and gave your son for us. We thank you for this. We praise you for this. We rejoice in you for all you have given to us. And we pray all of this in your son's name. Amen.